Hi, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you. <clears throat> it's good to be here together uh, in God's presence. Uh, because the proclamation of the word, of the good news, uh, is this communal act. It's not just something I'm doing and you're listening to. It's something that we are participating in together. Uh, I'm going to say this. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that uh, you would give us illumination, that you would shine on our hearts here as your word is proclaimed. Uh, enable us to hear good news today from this text, from Scripture. Uh, Lord, we believe we're here um, to hear and respond to this word today. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. All right. Uh, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, today we proclaim the good news that in the midst of our doubts and disappointments with Jesus, he refuses to abandon us and keeps leading us into resurrection life as we take up our cross and follow him. In the midst of our doubts and disappointments with Jesus, he refuses to abandon us and leads us into resurrection life as we take up our cross and follow him. How many of you guys have seen uh, the new Black Panther movie? Okay. I'm going to tell a story from it. Yeah. It's a good one. It's, li it's lit. As the, I think the kids say that these days. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm going to try to tell a story from the Black Panther movie without giving away any spoilers, okay? So I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Uh, because uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of good things uh, in this movie. But um, Black Panther, the interesting thing about Black Panther, as I've been kind of observing uh, the cultural phenomenon of it, is that it's been an important movie for African Americans um, in our culture. Uh, because in terms of representation, I saw this uh, thing on Twitter, this video where, you know, there's, a, there's some people looking at the poster, right? And it's filled with black faces. And they're like, this is what white people must feel like all the time. You know, and they're, they're just excited. There's just this representation of black characters um, there. Uh, and it challenged, the movie challenges white normativity, um, if you know what that is. Uh, just sort of the assumption that white things are normal uh, and other things are exotic or weird or different. That kind of thing. The movie challenged my uh, sense of white normativity. I realized in that um, most of the movie takes place in Wakanda, which is this fictional African nation. I expected, I, I, I realized this after the movie ended, I expected more of the action to like come into the Western world. I was like, oh, well, they're going to have a big battle in America because that's where things happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't consciously think that, but I realized I expected it. You know, but no, actually, it takes place in Africa, in this, in this African continent. So it was an interesting movie for me to watch. It was, it was really quite good. Um, most of the, you know, the, um, I heard this other joke I have to tell, because I like jokes. Um, so, uh, you know, most of the characters in the film are black, right? Um, and there's two main characters that are white. And uh, one of them uh, is the same guy who played Smeagol, or Gollum, in the... Uh, Lord of the Rings movies, and the other one is the guy who played uh, Frodo, the Hobbit, in the Hobbit movies, right? So they said, uh, the, the guy said, you know, they're, they're the Tolkien white guys. <laughs> Do you guys get it? Yeah. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, all right, so I laughed out loud at that, like literally laughed out loud, so there you go. All right, <clears throat> anyway, it's been an important movie for African Americans. The, the director's black, most of the actors are black. Uh, the plot line takes place in this Wakandan country, uh, South Korea as well. Um, and in the end, America is the country in need of help from an African country, right? So it kind of turns a lot of these things on its head. It's been an important movie. The central villain in the Black Panther movie is, an, uh, is Eric Killmonger. Uh, and Eric Killmonger grew up in the projects in Oakland. He actually grew up in America uh, because he was the son of a Wakandan spy. 
And so um, what he saw firsthand in the Oakland projects was the abuse and the exploitation of black bodies. And this grew to upset him uh, pretty significantly. He considered, you know, uh, black people everywhere kind of his brothers and sisters, even though they weren't necessarily of Wakandan nationality. Um, and he wanted to do something about their plight. He felt this sense of empathy and the sense of injustice, and he wanted to do something about their plight. But Wakandan policy is to protect itself. It's actually a secret, con a secret country um, that's hidden from the outside world. Nobody really knows how advanced they are in their technology or how much wealth they have. And so um, that's Wakandan policy by keeping this stuff secret. But Killmonger ends up be becoming embittered then, disappointed with Wakanda's new king, T'Challa, because T'Challa at first uh, keeps this same policy, and he says that we can't keep this policy. There are people who are, who are dying. There are people who are being exploited, and there are people. They come from Africa. There, there are people. They, they, have the, they look like us, right? And we have to do something about this problem. And so he seeks to take matters into his own hands. He rallies, rallies those in Wakanda who feel similarly, and that's the central conflict of the film. Um, one of the quotes from Killmonger in the film is this. He says, y'all sitting up here comfortable must feel good. Meanwhile, there are about two billion people all over the world that look like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And that's the central conflict of the movie. What kind of king does Wakanda need? What kind of justice are they going to participate in? Are they going to protect themselves or are they going to seek to do something uh, on behalf of um, those that are being abused and exploited. Um, and the interesting thing about this conflict in the film is that these issues are so real that the, that a hashtag started developing on Twitter um, called Killmonger was right. Killmonger was right. Where people were starting to sympathize with his arguments and say, look, look, he's right. He's not wrong about wanting to do something about the abuse and the exploitation of black bodies. Many people were expressing sympathy for his arguments in the movie. Maybe his methods were wrong, they said, but he's not wrong in terms of his impulse uh, to do some of these things. So you know he's a really well-written villain when he's sympathetic, right? People are like, yeah, I get it. I get his point of view. Um, and I, I bring that up because I think something similar is happening here in this gospel reading with Peter and Jesus that we, that we read about. During Lent here, um, our series is called A Table in the Wilderness, and we're preaching through the gospel texts. And all the gospel texts through Lent um, are kind of dealing with um, something that happens uh, kind of at the midpoint of Jesus' ministry, at least in terms of how the gospels say it, where Jesus shifts from kind of these parables about, like, here's what life in the kingdom is like. And everybody's like, this sounds awesome. Like, the kingdom is here. This is amazing. This is going to be great. But there's this shift that happens midway through the gospels where Jesus starts aiming the direction of his life towards the cross. And he starts talking to his disciples about it, and things get dark very quickly. Like, what? Like, wait a minute. The cross. Like, where are we going here, right? So this, this represents this turn uh, here in the Gospels. And all the, all the Gospel readings during Lent are, are representative of this turn. They're these sayings that are hard and, uh, you know, get behind me, Satan, and take up your cross. And like, Whoa, like, what are we doing here? Um, and the, the same thing is happening here. Peter is the killmonger to Jesus T'Challa. Jesus is the leader that Peter has given his life to. And just before this passage, um, uh, what Peter, it's the famous passage where Pete, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? 
And Peter pipes up, right, and says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're right, you're right, right? There's this grace that's given to him, you're right. I am the Messiah. And then it says, our gospel reading today started with, then he started saying to them. Then he started teaching them. Then he began to teach them what? That the Son of Man must suffer. That the Son of Man must be rejected by the leaders. The Son of Man must die and then rise from the dead, whatever that means. So he begins to teach them after they they sort of say, yes, you're the Messiah. And then he begins to teach them this stuff. And so you can imagine Peter, if he's kind of a killmonger character here. You can imagine Peter's disappointment with Jesus as he starts talking about suffering and death. Because that's, that's not what a Messiah does. Right? The Messiah, this is, a, this is a word that means anointed one. It means God's true king of Israel that's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. The king who's going to make Israel great again, if you will. That's the promise, though. That's what they're expecting. These people have been under the boot of Roman oppression for centuries. And they're like, enough. Enough is enough. We've been abused. We've been exploited. And now we're throwing our lot in with you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're going to liberate us from this bondage. And right at the moment where Jesus makes that explicit and Peter says, you're the Messiah. I know who you are. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's going to bring shalom back to us. You're the one who's going to bring the kingdom. I know who you are. And Peter thinks, it's on. Now we're getting somewhere. Jesus is not playing around with riddles and and parables anymore. Now he's, he's owning it. He's owning his authority. He's going to be the one to liberate us. And Peter takes all these expectations and all this pain and all this hurt that he has for his people and himself and his family, right? He takes all of that and the expectations he has about what it means to bring freedom to his people, and he loads it up on Jesus. And he says, I know, I know what to expect now from you. This is going to be great. Imagine his shock when Jesus began to teach him. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He's going to die and then rise again, whatever that means. So it's no wonder Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Right? You can imagine, Jesus, dude, we just, like, we just left everything to follow you. You just said you were the Messiah. And now you're, what are these negative thoughts? Where are these coming from? Are you depressed? Do we need medication for you? Like, what is going on? He can't figure Jesus out. Because Jesus is talking in very unmessianic things. These aren't things the Messiah does. Messiahs don't suffer. They don't die. They do the opposite of that. They raise an army and they kick the butt of the Roman oppressors. They make Israel great again. Israel's going to be on top of the world. We're going to be in charge. Jesus, like, can you imagine? This is deeply disappointing for Peter. I can imagine Peter being angry. I mean, there's, there's rebuke here. It's not just a question. Hey, academic question, Jesus. When you say, right, he's, he rebukes him. He says, don't do that anymore. It's bad for morale. People are going to hear you talking about suffering. I know you may have your doubts, Jesus, but don't talk like that publicly. That's not okay. He rebukes him, right? And you can understand why. He's disappointed. He's got these expectations of Jesus Jesus is not fulfilling them, but he's given his life to this guy. 
What do I do now? <laughs> I rebuke him. You know, like, cut it out. That's enough out of you, Jesus. Have you guys ever felt disappointed with Jesus? Have you ever felt disappointed with God? Have you ever felt like you had a promise from God? Have you ever felt like, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to take a risk here of faith, Lord. And then things didn't work out how you thought they were going to work out? It's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing. Maybe you took a risk to go into ministry, but then the funding didn't come through. You're back at your old job. Maybe you tithed your whole life thinking it's going to secure God's blessing of your family, but you lost your job. You haven't been able to find another one, and you're going into debt just paying your groceries every month. Maybe you're trying to be kind to the other kids at school because you think Jesus wants you to be kind to the other kids at school, but they're still gossiping about you. They're still bullying you. Maybe the whole church fasted and prayed for three days, but the baby still died. Maybe you prayed as hard as you've ever prayed in your life, but the cancer still came back. Maybe you uprooted your family to take the job thinking God was in it, only to get fired three months later in a round of layoffs some corporate office hundreds of miles away who doesn't know your life. Maybe you sacrificed your career to stay home with your kids. You tried your best to be a good parent, but they still walked away from the faith. What's up, Jesus? What's up with that? Those are the moments where we want to rebuke Jesus, right? You are not fulfilling the expectations that I have of a Messiah. Yes, a Messiah. Yeah. That's right, Casey. I remember uh, when we were planting our first church. I'm, I've got tons of these moments, tons of these moments in my life. I remember we were planting our first church, and uh, Matt said yesterday, like or last week, I think it was last week, you know, I didn't need to plant a church. I can't remember when you maybe you said this last week. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't want to plant a church. I felt the same way with the first church plant that we planted. Like, I, I don't need to, like, I don't have a need to, like, start my own thing. But I, I just felt like there was, there was something we were missing, and I, and I felt compelled to do it, right? But part of what I expected, I was, I was like, we're going to finally do, we're gonna do things right, right? <laughs> right? We're finally going to do things right, which is a big part of my personality. But, um, like, we're going to do things right. And here's what I expected. I really expected that people were going to be like, oh, finally, thank you. And they were going to flock to this church because they were going to see it. They were going to be like, oh, like, this is life. This is great. But it, like, it didn't happen, right? The growth curve is very similar to the table. It's sort of, okay, all right. You know, like, I think we're going to make it. I think it's going to be okay. But I was disappointed. I was like, God, like, what is this? You know? What is this? I, I moved to South Carolina to be part of a, like, I wanted to be part of, I moved down there to be part of a ministry that I felt like was going to be like, okay, this is where the real discipleship action is. Where the real mission, I'm gonna, my family and I are going to learn how to live on mission by being part of this community down there. We're, gonna, like, we're really going to get into it. We're gonna, this is going to be great for us. And it wasn't. It wasn't great. I mean, I wouldn't take anything back. I, would never make, I wouldn't make any other choices. But I was disappointed to find out we've got all the same issues, all the same problems, plus the culture we went into was such that we had more problems now to deal with. And it affected our physical and our emotional health uh, by being part of a toxic environment. Leadership expert uh, Ronald Heifetz says that leadership is disappointing your own people 
at a rate that they can absorb. That's leadership. I remember hearing this and thinking like, oh my gosh, like, I got to think about my own leadership differently here. But if this is true, Jesus is like the greatest leader of all time, isn't he? Because he has been disappointing his own people for centuries. Starting here with Peter, disappointing, disappointing him. I've been disappointed. You guys have been disappointed. We had expectations. You're going to be the Messiah. You're going you're gonna to help us. You're going to do the thing that we can't do for ourselves. And phew, didn't happen. Didn't come through. Disappointing us. Failing to live up to our expectations. Failing to be the Messiah that we wanted. Like Killmonger's disappointment with T'Challa, Peter's disappointed in Jesus when he starts talking about suffering and death. Because he thinks that's the opposite of being a Messiah. It's not being a Messiah. That's the opposite of being the Messiah. And like Peter, we do the same thing. We get the gist right. You are the Messiah. Yeah, you're right. But we get the content wrong. How, are you, how is he going to be the Messiah? And we don't realize these things until we, until we are disappointed. And we realize, oh, I had an expectation of something that you were going to do for me, but you didn't do it for me. And those are the moments where we have a choice. We can either stick with our expectations and rebuke Jesus. That's actually an important first step. We'll talk about that. We can either stick with our expectations or we can, or we can trust the character of the one that we're following to say, okay, I don't, I don't get it, but I'm going to take another step and see how that goes. Just take one more step and see how that goes. In the midst of our doubts and disappointments with Jesus, he refuses to abandon us. That's the good news. And keeps leading us into resurrection life as we take up our cross and follow him. If you have never been disappointed with Jesus, I would say either you've been a Christian for only half an hour. Or you're not being honest. Sometimes that's the way we avoid the pain of being disappointed by Jesus is we pretend we're not. Oh, it's, you know, everything God is good. It's fine. But we don't, we don't, really, we don't really get anywhere. I'm <laughs> We've got a lot of cliches we could uh, throw around, right? How you doing? Better than I deserve. Okay, so let, let's talk briefly about how, how, how is Jesus not abandoning Peter in this moment? Because the good news here, guys, the good news is this. Doubt and disappointment with Jesus are totally normal. Totally normal. Okay? So if you've been disappointed with Jesus, you're not a bad Christian. You're a normal Christian. And the second thing is Jesus refuses to abandon you. He's not rolling his eyes and huffing. He's not saying like, Matt's at it again, doubting, trying to make me be something I don't want to be. He's not frustrated. He, kn he knew that was in you. He knew that was in you. And part of the reason you're disappointed is because God's bringing you a moment where we can, where we can hear good news, right? It's a Kairos moment. We talk about these in our DNA groups. It's just a kairos moment. And here's how we see Jesus doing that. Jesus' response. What is Jesus' response to Peter? I mean, it's funny. I always think it's, I always kind of laugh in my, because I can't imagine it happening in real life, right? Like Jesus looks around at his disciples and then he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you do not have the things of God in mind, but merely human concerns. So what are we to make of this? Like, what is Jesus doing here? Was Peter possessed by Satan in that moment and Jesus is casting out Satan from Peter? No, uh, I don't think so. Um, was Jesus employing name-calling to get Peter to behave, right? 
No, no, that's not it either, Matt. Yep, these are rhetorical questions. You're supposed to know that that's not what happens. But anyway, those, sometimes that's, I think, what we think is happening, right? Jesus is like he's being harsh with Peter to try to get him to behave, calling him Satan, calling him names. Now, I think a couple things are happening here. Number one, Jesus is resisting temptation. So we preached last week on the temptations. Uh, in Mark's gospel, like, again, super compact. He was tempted. He was with some animals, you know. Uh, that was it. Then he, went, then he went into his ministry, right? But in Matthew and Luke, of course, we have the content of these temptations, and we start to discern what was this about? What was he being tempted to do? And we find out, we can't go into it. I'd love, I'd love to, but we can't. We find out that Jesus was not being tempted to abandon his call as Messiah. He was being tempted to fulfill it in a different way than he knew he was called to. He knew he was called to the cross, suffering, being rejected, dying on the cross, rising again. That was the pathway for his messiahship. The temptations were for him to not do that, to go around it, to take it a different way, to be impressive, jump from the temple, right? To provide for the people, give them what they want. It'll be like manna in the desert. You'll be like the new Moses. It'll be awesome, right? Or just rule them with an iron fist. You can make them do what you want. Like make them do what's best for them. They're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. That those were the temptations. It was to be the Messiah in a different way. And so what Jesus hears here in Peter's rebuke is an echo of those temptations. You don't have to go to the cross. You could solve this right now. You could do this a different way. And he knows where the source of that thought comes from. It's satanic. So number one, he's resisting temptation. But number two, he's discipling Peter. He's caring for Peter in this moment. Jesus knows, I, I, have, to, I have to stick to the path. I can't, I can't go this other way. Get behind me, Satan. But he also knows that Peter is so caught up in his self-preservation instinct and his desire for vengeance, perhaps, that he is on board with Satan's program, <laughs> Right? Essentially, that's what's happening here. And so Jesus is discipling Peter in revealing reality to him. He's calibrating grace and truth with Peter to say, look, Peter, here's where that thought comes from. I know you don't realize it, but here's where it comes from. Those are just human concerns. They're not the concerns of God. There's something different that I need you to understand and walk into here. So in those moments of doubt and disappointment, Peter... Peter, right, his moment about disappointment, he rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm refusing to abandon you. Instead, I'm going to calibrate grace and truth with you. I'm going to call you in further and reveal to you, here's the source of that thought. And then he invites him, right? Hey, if you want to follow me, here's what it is. Here's what it is. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what it is. So, I mean, he's making space for Peter and for the other disciples because in the midst of our doubts and disappointments with Jesus, he refuses to abandon us. He keeps leading us into resurrection life as we take up our cross and follow him. He's not the Messiah we want, but he is the Messiah we need. And part of that Messiahship that we need is him not abandoning us when we get it wrong, when we rebuke him, when we let him have it, when we tell him how we really feel. He doesn't abandon us. Instead, he calls us and says, I am the Messiah you need. I am bringing the kingdom. I am bringing shalom. I am making all things new. I'm making everything right, but not like that. Not through violence. Not through coercion. Not through manipulation. Not through 
influence and trying to, you know, get into the, the, the halls of power. But this path that nobody would have guessed, walk the cross, and you can come with me. You take up your cross. You deny yourself, which just means to deny your self-preservation, all the ways that we try to secure our life. And we say, actually, I'm, I'm going to trust you, Jesus, that as I, as I take up my cross and follow you, which isn't like a hardship, right? A cross is an instrument of execution. <laughs> Talked about that a couple weeks ago, too. We take up that cross and we go with Jesus to death, to those things. I'm on my way to the cross, and if you want to follow me, you get to get crucified, too. But the good news is that I am, I am going to suffer. I am going to be rejected. I am going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And that's the hope with which we take up our cross. We don't take up our cross because we're masochists, <laughs> right? Because we like pain, because we're heroes. We're the true, the, the proud disciple. You know, like, we don't do that. We do it because we trust that, that there's resurrection on the other side of it. That, God, that Jesus really does know what he's talking about. And that if I try to hold on to my life, I'm going to lose it. But if I give up my life, if I lay it down, if I go to the cross with Jesus, that I'll find it. That Jesus will give it to me. Give me everything that I need. And by the way, this is not nihilism, nor is it an excuse for abuse. Okay? This passage has been used to keep people in abusive situations. You just got to take up your cross and go back to him. No. Okay? This is not take up your cross and stay in an abusive relationship. Right? It's, it's, he says, take up your cross. He says, if you, uh, if you give up your life for me, for Jesus, and for the gospel. Which means we, we believe something about Jesus and the promise of the gospel. That the thing that we have to hold on to is not nearly as valuable as the thing that Jesus will give us if we follow him. Yeah? Jim Elliott, uh, who was a missionary to uh, the Alka Indians, he actually lost his life as a young man seeking to bring the gospel, um, has a quote that, uh, that I really like. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In the midst of our doubts and disappointments with Jesus, he refuses to abandon us and keeps leading us into resurrection life as we take up our response cross and follow him. So how do we respond to this? Um, this might seem like a steep call, right? Take up your cross. And it is, in a sense. Like, th like following Jesus isn't a lifestyle enhancement. It's not like, you know, getting a tattoo or something. You know, it's, not, it's not like an additional part of your life. This is your whole life, is following Jesus. And so that, that's part of what this means. Um, it's, it's dying and rising with Christ. But I, I take comfort in the other passages that we read. You know, we read about Abraham we kind of glossed over some things about Abraham. And then in, in the New Testament passage, Paul talks about Abraham, and he says he never wavered in his faith. Which, if you know anything about the story of Abraham, you're like, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, that guy, that guy was all over the place, right? He was lying about his, like, he was trying to preserve his life. He was doing the exact same things Peter's doing here, right? So what's up with that? Like, does Paul not know his Old Testament? No, he knows his Old Testament. But I take comfort in the fact that Paul says he never wavered in his faith because I, I look at Abraham's life and I look at Peter's life and I'm like, if that's what it means to never waver in faith, it's not that hard. We're nailing it, right? Like, if we're, you're here in church. Like, that's, that's crazy. You know, that's it's way better than those guys did. But you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not about perfect performance. 
when it comes to taking up your cross. It's just about taking the next step. It's just about just repenting. You just keep coming back. Jesus refuses to abandon you, and so you just keep taking the next step. Even when the next step is, oops, that was the wrong step, and you just, you just come back. You just keep repenting, and that's faithfulness. It's a commitment to just keep repenting. Peter's the same way. I mean, the life of Peter is, I mean, this guy didn't, up until the crucifixion, he didn't get it, right? He was still wavering, it seems like, looked like. But when Jesus comes to him on the beach in John 21, he cooks him breakfast, and he says, come and eat breakfast, what does Peter do? He says, okay, and he just sits down at the table, and he receives the fish, and he has some breakfast with Jesus. That's, that's faith. That's a life of faith. Just keep sitting down at the table and eating what Jesus gives you. He's not afraid of all the mistakes you make. He's not afraid of your rebuke. He's not afraid of you confessing you're disappointed with him. In fact, confessing your disappointment is ground zero for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in your life. Trust Jesus enough to tell him what is going on. That's how I, that's how I want to respond today. Um, to just keep repenting because Jesus refuses to abandon us and he leads us into resurrection life. Um, so we're going to use this prayer uh, in your booklet as a way to respond. It says, Lord Jesus, I confess my disappointment with blank. You can name what you're disappointed with there. Help me trust you to bring resurrection life as I take up my cross and follow you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Because those moments where we are confessing our disappointment, where we're confessing where we think God's got it wrong, where he's failed us in our perception as a Messiah. Those are the moments where God's kingdom can break in, where Jesus can call us back to himself. And we don't know how that's going to look. You don't need to know what it's going to look like. You just start by confessing what's real because God meets you in reality. He meets you where you're actually present to where you actually are. That's where he's waiting for you. So let's pray and confess this together.